Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Brian Belsky has been tweeting optimism on the equity markets. He's with BMO Capital uh, Markets. Brian, uh, good morning. Um, I, I want to talk about your case to be in the market and not in cash. When I see three quarters of 3.1% GDP growth, real GDP growth, <clears throat> and the nominal animal spirit numbers from James Diamond and JP Morgan uh, this morning. What did the gloom crew get wrong about the machine that is the American economy? I love that, the gloom too. Um, good morning, Bloomberg. Good morning, Tom. I, I would say this. Uh, we've had the lowest, most boring standard deviation of growth environment of GDP and earnings growth since the uh, Great Recession, uh, which was, let me just repeat to everyone that doesn't know, that was a once-in-every-other-generation event. Every time the market goes down, doesn't mean it's 2008, 2009. The 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 negative naysayers continue to believe that markets can't go up unless interest rates go down. We are in a brand new fundamental cycle, one we haven't seen uh, since the 50s or the 60s or even the beginning of the uh, market uh, bull market of the 1980s. This is not the bull market of the late 90s. This is the bull market of the early 80s when we were picking stocks and buying companies and things like that. Fund, good old-fashioned fundamental analysis with respect to the J.P. Morgan um, revenues and, and numbers that have really kind of kick-started what we believe is going to continue to happen within the big banks. We, we think that on a near-term basis, last couple quarters, Tom, that most institutional investors mm-hmm. have been renting the financials and not owning them and been kind of more chasing momentum. And we yeah. still think that the majority of our institutional well, clients around the world are underexposed to yeah. big banks, especially the ones with scale. That's like John Farrell rents me and he doesn't own me. Something like I that. don't like the sound of that at all, yeah. to be honest with you, Tom. Okay. okay. <laughs> Brian, when I spoke to you last time, that was the big conviction yep. call for you. It was financials, financials, financials. What do you think investors are underpricing? What area of the bank is going to deliver that the consensus view doesn't appreciate? Yeah, that's a great question. You saw the numbers here this morning uh, with respect to JPM. I think it's a microcosm what's going to happen within, within these big franchises that have scale. It's the asset management slash wealth, wealth management businesses and the commercial bank both kind of feed into capital markets. Capital markets traditionally are smaller parts of the bigger banks. You know, as we continue uh, to see people rotating, you know, Tom's been asking me for 10 years, when are people going to start buying equities and start buying dividend growth and get out of fixed income? I do think that, dare I say the great rotation, let's call it something else. I do think that people over the next three to five years are going to start buying equity income to, to provide income, and that's a pretty that's a pretty uh, popular and very profitable business for banks, and it hasn't even begun yet. So I think the wealth management, commercial banking uh, part of, of the big banks with scale are going to be very, very strong growth vehicles for the next 10 years. That's a really interesting point, Brian. I think the other thing, if you speak to sort of the bear case around the financials, you'll struggle to find one. Firstly, secondly, um, if you do find them, they might tell you something about loan growth that it's just not picking up, and this is the peak yep. of the cycle for the financials. Does the J.P. Morgan numbers this morning challenge that kind of bear case view around loan growth? I think it does, and you got to remember too that you know corporate CEOs doesn't matter if it's a bank CEO or CEO of John Farrow Incorporated have been paid to be conservative. 
and not spend any money because that's how the stock price has gone up by buying back stock, paying dividends, and and cutting costs. And so until we start to see really implicit demand fall into the marketplace, companies aren't going to spend any money. So the commercial loan is is not going to be as strong as everybody thinks. But that's the key thing, man. We're going to start spending money, and the banks are going to continue to be conservative because they're not going to admit that regulations are actually in the process over the next several years of easing. What are they going to do with cash? Is the use of cash exercise bordering for some companies on financial engineering? Is it the same as three years ago when it was easy, or is it different now? Uh, I think it's going to be a bit of a mixture, because if you think about it, Tom, and you you know this, that from a, from a historical perspective, interest rates are still low. They're, they're going to be higher than they were three years ago, exactly. so the engineering is going to be yeah. a little bit different. We, we continue to think that uh, that companies are going to go out and, and uh, look for commercial loans because they don't want to use their balance sheet because it's a shorter-term use of money, uh, and they can pay those commercial loans off and facilitate growth. you got to remember, man, I mean, the, the age of equipment in our country uh, is at all-time highs. We haven't spent any money on that. So I do think we're going to start to see more and more spending, but from a cash perspective, I think they're going to go out and get a commercial loan, and something that we have not seen. you got to remember a lot of financial analysts that are covering the banks or companies ha- have less than 10 years experience have never seen a CNI loan cycle like we saw in the 80s and even part of the 90s. Brian, and another element that a lot of people discuss going into this is just the deposit base um, for many of these financials. It has been virtually free. They haven't had to pay for it. They haven't had to pay big interest rates on those deposits. They haven't had yep. to match the slide up in the Federal Reserve move on, on higher rates. When do we start to see that shift? Because people are starting to discuss that it may happen at some point through this year in a material way relative to what we've seen in years gone by. Yeah, I think uh, it's a great point. Uh, uh, the deposit side of things, more I mean, what we're seeing in, in overall loan growth will more than offset what we're seeing in deposits. And you also see, too, that although we are seeing higher cash balances uh, with respect to what we've seen the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years in banks, we're starting to start starting to see more spending as well. So some of that will be offset. So, Brian, just, just to be clear, the deposit sort of loan business, the vanilla sort of traditional banking business, Correct. is it going to be more about volume? I mean, more, more about volume about it, than margins? At, yeah, over the banking side of things, I mean, that's going to be the slowest, most grindiest part of the growth base of, of these banks on how they're going to make money for the next 10 or 15 years. What else is out there beside the banks? Where's the value opportunity? Is it a 28 multiple that's come back to a 23 multiple? Or are there other dynamics that get your attention, Brian? Yeah, I think, Tom, the numbers that you're quoting are kind of don't include the tax cuts as a trailing number. You have to kind of look forward. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that people are missing in the marketplace is that, you know, markets may be up 13 to 15 percent this year, but earnings are going to be up 18 to 20 percent at, at best. That means the multiple is going to uh, compress. And so you're going to see things like industrials lead because we're starting to spend again. You're going to see select tech stocks start to come off these lows as people uh, start to have a little bit more common sense than just fire aim ready on the tech side of things. I think materials, especially uh, some of the metals, uh, are, are, are going to do very well uh, as we start to spend a little bit. And so I, I think that's where we're going to see the strongest growth for the next three to eight quarters. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and frankly, I just don't think people know how to buy value stocks and buy uh, Garpy high quality names anymore. The world according to GARP. Brian Belsky, thank you so much. BMO Capital uh, Markets with some optimism uh, this morning.
John Farrow and Tom Keen. Mr. Corbett, John says, our first quarter results demonstrate strength in balance across our franchise. I guess it's a little different report than J.P. Morgan. Yeah, unlike J.P. Morgan, it's a a miss on um, fixed income revenue for the first quarter. It comes in at $3.42 billion, the estimate 3.7. On a EPS basis, earnings per share for the first quarter, 168, the estimate 161. So that's a beat on EPS. It's a miss on fixed income revenue, Tom. And in the pre-market, just to get you up to speed on what the price action looks like, we stay positive by 1.34%. Single digit year over year growth. There's always a lot of noise in there. As these numbers come out, I want to be very careful about, you know, any, you know, idea. See, I see loans. I got a 7% statistic there. We'll have to see more on that. But uh, you got to be careful. Tangible book value per share, uh, 7% lower than it was uh, a bit ago, up only 1%, where JP Morgan was up 4 ish percent as well. I believe Wells Fargo is coming out. Now. Oh, thank you, John. Thank you, John Tucker. John, do you, you want to do this one, John? Of, do you want no, to take, I just like, just flag it. You Wells, Wells Fargo. Fargo, they all come. Go ahead, John. EPS a dollar twelve. Um, the first quarter provision for credit losses one hundred and ninety-one million dollars. The estimate seven hundred and twenty-nine point four million in well, terms of loans nine hundred and fifty-one. Billion versus an estimate of nine hundred and fifty-six point seven seven quarter. On it's quarter. it's a Wells Fargo different than it was a scandal or two ago. Return on equity twelve point twelve point four percent is different. Colin saying Wells Fargo lifts a little bit here uh, in in uh, the business, but these are all very different banks, John. We got to remember for our global audience, uh, particularly they're not all the same, and and it's very unfair to bundle them uh, all together. He is at the College of Tufts University, and that would be James Stravitas, who once took a boat out of a harbor in San Diego for points west. In your book, uh, Admiral, uh, your book Oceans, you talk about the first time you went to sea. There's a kid on a boat in the Mediterranean right now. Maybe it's not his first time at sea, but it's first time in harm's way. What do sailors do on boats waiting in the Mediterranean? They watch CNN these days. Uh, back when I took ships to sea uh, a decade ago, we were not uh, quite so uh, electronically connected. But right now, Tom, they're, uh, they've got satellite radio. They've got CNN. They're probably listening to us right now. And they're quite fixated on their mission. They have Tomahawk targets loaded up into the combat system. And they're ready to go, and they stay focused. And just like the markets need to weed out the noise, our sailors and our soldiers need to weed out the noise, too, and they will. Is the relationship of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the relationship of Admiral Richardson, the relationship of General Battis normal, given these events, with this White House? In today's world, as a senior military, you you have a big challenge, frankly, with this White House, and that is that you lead an organization that is founded on courage, honor, commitment, and truthfulness. The commander-in-chief of that organization is not demonstrating those qualities. So as a senior military leader, you have to turn to your subordinates, all those soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines, and tell them, filter it out. We have a mission to do. We swear an oath of allegiance, not to the president, but to right. the Constitution of the United States. So a lot of 
uh, leadership going on by right. our senior military right now. One of my exercises, Admiral, to uh, begin to even understand the pressures you've been under at sea was to read of Her Majesty's ship, the Sheffield, of another time mm-hmm. and place. If they put a missile up in the air to defend Russian assets, how does our uh, military, how does our Navy defend these ships? We've come a long way since the Falklands War, which you just alluded to, Tom, where the Her Majesty's ship Sheffield was sunk by an Exocet missile fired by the Argentinians. Uh, we have highly advanced air defense systems, so we can not only launch those Tomahawk missiles offensively into Syria, those destroyers are very capable of defending themselves in a, a heavy attack environment. We're, we're ready to go if need be. Admiral Jonathan here, just talk to me about how difficult it is to sort of come up with a, a military response to what's happening in Syria. Uh, when you have a Russian air force there, you have Iranians on the ground as well. It's incredibly complex. How do you come to a decision where you can have the most impact, the most credible response, but at the same time avoiding a mistake of hitting Russia? Three things, Jonathan. First is Um, You have to go after targets that are legitimate under international law. So that means targets that are associated with the kill chain of the chemical weapons. That's production, transportation, command and control. Uh, Those are the targets you can go after. Secondly, you have to massively put all your intelligence assets, satellites, drones, people on the ground to help you parse those targets. And then thirdly, you need to use very smart weapons, and we have those to reduce collateral damage. Above all, we do not want to kill a bunch of Russians here. We want to take out Syrian chemical weapons. Admiral, fantastic insight. Admiral James Stravidis, the dean of the Mm. Fletcher School at Tufts University, giving us some of his time, Tom, on, on a really significant story of the last week and, for that matter, the last couple of years. Stan Collender uh, with us. And Stan, I want to bring John Farrell right into this discussion. Stan Collender, uh, of course, doing so much good work for us on our fiscal uh, posture. April 26, 2009, Stan Collender. David Cameron stood up and said, the age of irresponsibility is giving way to the age of austerity. How far is the United States from an age of austerity? Well, would you, would you believe the mirror image or, or that the age of austerity has been taken over by the age of overwhelming deficits? Uh, it, it's, we are not only are we not anywhere close to austerity, we're going in the opposite direction, Tom. Uh, according to the new CBO report that came out this week, deficits under the best of circumstances will, will be a trillion dollars a year every year through the Trump administration and keep rising. And if the economy turns down, we're talking about $2 trillion deficits. So austerity, right. what, that's not even a word that's operable and anymore in Washington. John, austerity in England means something different than here, I guess. And there's all sorts of philosophy and culture yeah. involved here. Stan Collender... How did we get here? I mean, you're the budget guy. Philosophically, how did the nation get here? Well, it it, it was uh, we were ta- saying one thing and doing another. That is, you had Republicans who were demanding austerity and deficit reductions during the, the uh, Obama administration, and as soon as there was a Republican majority in both houses and a Republican White House, they went in the opposite direction with a 1.5 to 2 trillion dollar uh, tax cut, and uh, you know, and, and a, another 140, 150 billion dollar increase in spending, permanent increase in spending. 
So um, it's hard to uh, say that uh, there was any real appetite from the beginning, that it was all subterfuge, uh, you know, misdirection, whatever. So, Stan, this is what we have. Now let's just ask the basic question as to whether it matters. Does it matter? Well, you've got to believe at some point it does, Jonathan. Now, let me be honest. Uh, we've never been here before, and it's possible that everything we've always thought about, deficits being too high for too long a period, the government borrowing too much money, et cetera, everything could be wrong. Uh, yeah. Or that we, you know, but we don't oh, know. come on. We There's got to be, can... just stand, stop. There's got to be a price. What's the price to, to what we're doing right now? Well, hang on a minute, Tom. I mean, look at Japan, for instance. Japan has a much, much worse <clears throat> debt backdrop than the United States but does. But I would and, suggest... And whatever it's projected well, to be. Okay, Stan, And look but, at the price of JTP. Okay, but Stan, isn't culturally the savings ethos of Japan what saved them? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and Jonathan, uh, in terms of prices that uh, we might have to pay, you've got to believe that interest rates are going to be higher than they would otherwise be or have been, had it not been for these, these now continual run-up of deficits. Um, for, furthermore, when we do get into an economic crisis situation, when it requires some sort of stimulus, we're talking about deficits that may be either politically untenable or beyond the realm of what the, what the market will accept. I mean, yeah. we could be talking, you know, and I'm not sure we want to wait until that particular moment to find out that these deficits are not the way you want it to go. Let's be clear here. The reason I ask, and we're all fiscal conservatives, most of our listeners are fiscal conservatives, I'm just asking, Tom, because we've been talking about this in Japan for so, so long. And in Japan, it just hasn't mattered yet. It hasn't mattered in a material way. The only time this has mattered, the debt story in developed economies, was after the financial crisis. And it was in Europe. And it was because the ECB was completely unable to respond, Tom. The Fed's there. I'll go with that. Uh, Stan, I want to be sure we get this in. Paul Krugman today with uh, uh, what I'll call a very good essay but a brilliant paragraph for all Americans, and we deserve to have Stan Collender comment on this one sentence. I put this out on Twitter earlier, folks. Let me quote uh, Krugman, uh, the laureate. Centrists who couldn't find real examples of serious, honest conservatives lavished praise on politicians who played that role on TV. Paul Ryan wasn't actually very good at faking it. True fiscal experts ridiculed his mystery meat budgets. Did you ridicule Paul Ryan's budgets, Mr. Collender? Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, his, his reputation as a policy wonk was probably not as deserved as he, he kept telling people it was. Um, and let's remember that he's going to go down. His last, Paul Ryan's lasting legacy is as the enabler of these trillion-dollar deficits. Uh, the person who said that he wanted to, if he was, he was for fiscal responsibility, he wanted to eliminate the debt and deficit, um, is, is, had presided over and allowed the, the legislation to be considered that brought these deficits to these levels we've never seen before. So um, it, he, you can listen to what he says, or you can actually look at the facts, and the facts are very, very different than what he's telling people and what well, other people have been saying about him. Stan Collender with us on our fiscal uh, policy. Huge, huge upset from the Seventh District in Virginia. I spoke to uh, former Majority Leader Eric Cantor in Davos, and he was trounced by uh, the gentleman from Hope College, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and also from Princeton Theological Seminary, Professor Bratt, now the congressman from the Richmond uh, District. Congressman, wonderful to speak to you this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
I look at the presidential tweets. I look at the emotion. I want to know from you where a more conservative centrist Republican Party is this morning in Washington. You're not a slime ball. I assume out of Princeton Theological Seminary, you would not use that kind of language in public discourse. What does a centrist conservative Republican do with your president? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. We all got to ratchet down the language and just focus on rational policy. And the centrist part, everybody kind of wishes for that. But it, if you just look at the omnibus bill, I always ask people, what does it mean to be in the center? The Republicans wanted a trillion-dollar deficit. The Democrats wanted a $1.3 trillion deficit. And so the center or the compromise is in the middle of those two, and that's a disaster as well. And so it, it, we have a problem up here in the swamp. I, I, I always refer back to, you know, Adam Smith, the founder of free market economics, and James Madison, the author of the Constitution. Uh, we got to do what's right. And what's right is you, we can't continue to throw the kids yeah. under the uh, bus with a $21 trillion in debt. It's uh, intergenerational right. theft. In Pym, I would uh, mention to you that Congressman Brad has the statue of Thomas Jefferson located in the Jefferson Hotel in Richmond, in Richmond. Virginia. Yeah, it uh, is not the swamp. Uh, uh, Congressman, I'm wondering if I could get your, your thoughts on, uh, I'm sure you've been following uh, the demonstrations around the country, for, for example, in, in Arizona, teachers uh, coming out and saying that the amount of money that is being spent on education is not commensurate with the need, and there's even talk that this may be a big political issue for Republicans in the midterm elections. I wonder if you could speak to that topic. Yeah, well, education, I, I think we need to start from ground zero. I mean, if you talk to the administrators, the teachers, the parents, or the kids, no one likes this regimen of teaching to the test and just running things as usual. So maybe well, they're no talking about well, they're, they're actually, excuse me, Congressman, what they're talking about is that the teachers are not getting paid enough to do the jobs yeah. that they do currently. Yeah, no, that's, yep, no, that's where I was going. And so the, if you realign the incentives and we start teaching kids about business and careers and vocations, that you can spend more pay on teacher pay and less on all the administrative stuff. <clears throat> so the schools are doing everything except teaching kids what a business is. I taught college economics for 20 years, and the kids come out of high school not knowing what a business is. They don't know a price, a cost, a profit, or anything, right? So maybe we need a total realignment of teachers who can get at preparing kids for a future where they can get a job. Half the kids won't go to college. And they don't know what a business is when they're done with high school. Okay, but but so Congressman, respect, this. but but uh, with respect, Congressman, the issue seems to be that tax cuts in many of these very states have led to a decrease in funding for education, and that the reason that you're seeing these widespread demonstrations and teacher walkouts supported by parents is they want the local and state governments to spend more money on education and rather than focused on tax cuts or on, as you described, growing businesses. They'd rather have the money spent on that than on other things. What, what is your reaction yeah. to that? Yeah, well, the premise is not correct. The tax cuts have nothing to do with spending. Uh, the federal tax cuts have nothing to do with spending on uh, state local schools. That's 90 percent of the budget, just state and local. And the tax cuts have already generated 3% wage growth and 3% economic growth. And if you're growing at 3% GDP, that's enough to pay for the tax cut. What they might be upset with, and the number that never gets discussed, is that we did $150 billion a year for tax cuts, but to get nine Democrat senators at the end of the year on the omnibus, it cost us $400 billion. 
never mentioned by the Democrats, never mentioned by the press, and that's not being spent on schools and skilling up the kids. And so the whole premise is wrong, right? So if you want to know uh, who wants big spending up here in, in D.C. on everything except the kids, it's the Democrats. We just had to plus up $400 billion. And then the Democrats proposed, I was in with the head of uh, economics for uh, CBO yesterday, and I asked, which is better for the economy, cutting taxes by $2 trillion or the Democrat proposal of raising taxes by $10 trillion? That's what they proposed, 107 votes for the Democrat progressive budget. And that would have brought the economy to a standstill. Then you'd have no money coming into the coffers for schools whatsoever. So I, I totally reject the, the premise, and that's why we got to get back to teaching economics, uh, because the left is just making stuff up here that's political. Right? Okay, okay, the but, best uh, thing you can do to – JFK knew this. You want He said it in quotes. You want to enhance revenues? Cut taxes. That's a quote from JFK. Okay. You've also been quoted as saying that, you've, that you have just blown a big hole in the budget and that you don't necessarily have a good track record, what exactly do you feel you need to do in order to get both Democrats and Republicans on the same page so that this trillion-plus deficit doesn't come back and hit these students, these children, that yep. are going to be adults in a couple years? Yeah, no, that, that's the tough part. You need to stop. The growth of the federal government, right? The anxiety and the anger level out there in the country is at an all-time high. And it tracks when everybody's sending their special interest crony lawyers up to D.C. to get their hands on billions of dollars. The best way to solve that is to bring power back down to the state and local so we can properly fund education, for example, at the state and local level. This has been and that's a heavy lift. Yeah, but you're right. We we I, I am quoted. We did. We blew the budget. We got trillion dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. And uh, we got to fix that. Yeah, and we, the Democrats yeah. want to increase spending when we want to decrease it. So and, that's a tough thing to compromise. And D- David Brett with us from uh, Richmond in the seventh district of Virginia to bring you up to date, Congressman. Mr. Collender was with us earlier today and said the goal is maybe to get down to a trillion dollar deficit, which I found frightening. David Brett, in the time that <laughs> right. we've got left with you, I want to go back to your work at Hope College and also at Princeton Theological, really one of the great foundations of the Presbyterian Church in America. I want you to speak to our national audience right now of one of the great mysteries of this era that we're in. Away from the Presbyterian faith, how do evangelicals rationalize supporting this president, given so much of the uproar about tangential items, the lewdness, what we've seen just in the last 48 hours, or for that matter, over any number of weeks before the campaign. How does he garner the support of the religious evangelicals you are tangential to? Yeah, well, I I think there's a few issues. Number one, uh, you guys have high town halls on tape, right? They're online. I tried to have two town halls, 700 activists on the left showed up, and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. So it's not like it's unique to one party or the other. Sure. The, whole, the, the, the problem is we've got to fix it all, and I, I am, I'm right with you on this. And so, again, when kids are done with K-12 education, we paid $13,000 for 13 years. They don't know any religion. They don't know any system of ethics. They don't know any philosophy, and that's our culture right now, right? And so if you say to your friends on the left, look, you don't have to teach the Judeo-Christian tradition or any particular religion, right? Our, our tradition, James Madison and Jefferson, came up with the statutes on religious toleration, so you don't force your faith on other people. That's our okay. constitutional fabric. I understand. But you got to teach some ethics at a minimum, right? I mean, Aristotle, okay. Kant, 
anybody will do. Given what all of us, whatever our politics, and we're buffeted day after day, week after week by behavior of a president, whatever anybody's thought is on politics, how does he keep that bedrock evangelical religious vote? Well, I I think what I just said, I mean, a a lot of the evangelical community is concerned with religious freedom, right? And so uh, over the past eight years, conservative groups were targeted by the IRS, by the Justice Department, etc. And so when you're Mm -hmm. under that degree of attack, now at least we have freedom of speech back, hopefully protected, you know, for the next several years. But the left on college campuses and whatever is stifling speech all over the place. I mean, it's documented every night. And okay. so this is unfortunate, right? I don't agree when the president he, he goes off on foul language and all that kind of thing. I, I, I make it very clear. I stand by the Judeo-Christian ethics, right. and I expect everyone to live up to that uh, standard. And so anyone that falls, we, uh, is, is comes up short. Congressman, we're out of time. Thank you so much from the 7th District. Think Richmond in uh, Virginia. David, Brad. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.